Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome to this episode of New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for today. Our guest is Dr. Regina N. Bradley, author of Chronicling Stinkonia, The Rise of the Hip Hop South, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2021. Chronicling Stinkonia pulses with the beats of a new American South, probing the ways music, literature, and film have remixed Southern identities for a post-civil rights generation. For scholar and critic Regina N. Bradley, Outcast's work is the touchstone, a blend of funk, gospel, and hip-hop, developed in conjunction with the work of other culture creators, including T.I., T.S.A. Lehman, and Jasmine Ward. This work, Bradley argues, helps define new cultural possibilities for Black Southerners who came of age in the 1980s and 1990s and have used hip-hop culture to buffer themselves from the historical narratives and expectations of the civil rights era. Andre 3000, Big Boy, and a wider community of creators emerge as founding theoreticians of the hip-hop South, framing a larger question of how the region fits into not only hip-hop culture, but also contemporary American society as a whole. Chronicling Stanconia reflects the ways that culture, race, and Southernness intersect in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Although part of Southern hip-hop culture remains to the past, Bradley demonstrates how younger Southerners use the music to embrace the possibility of multiple Souths, multiple narratives, and multiple points of entry into contemporary Southern Black identity. So our guest today, Dr. Regina Ann Bradley, is an alumna Nasir Jones, hip-hop fellow at Harvard University, and an assistant professor of English and African Diaspora Studies at Kennesaw State University. So welcome, Dr. Bradley. Thank you for having me. Yeah, looking forward to our talk. So before we dive into the book itself, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? So I am originally from Albany, Georgia, which is a small city in the southwest corner of the state. Um, I am as much of a enthusiast and fan as I am a Southern hip hop scholar. (laughs) So that worked in my favor uh, for writing this book. Um, Yeah, I'm just a down South Georgia girl first, researcher and scholar, you know, second. (laughs) That's awesome. Yes. And I definitely think that came through in the book too, like that positionality of yours, which I loved. Um, I love it when people can like connect to their work in that way. Thank you. Um, So I thought that was really cool. Um, And kind of continuing with sort of like the behind the scenes type stuff. um, What was this process or journey rather leading up to Chronicling Stinkonia like? It it seems like this book has been a long time coming. It has probably because uh, I'm a perfectionist. So (laughs) fair enough. Um, I started I started drafting this book. uh, I say this at the end of the book, actually, in, in 2014. Um. And I had just seen that uh, the Atlanta series of concerts for their reunion tour, and I was feeling motivated, um, <laughs> and also trying to <laughs> trying to find a job. So it was like a little bit of everything going on at the same time. But then also just kind of realizing that I was ready to contribute to hip hop scholarship from a perspective that wasn't the West Coast and wasn't from New York, because as a Southerner. Um, you feel left out of these conversations, you know what I'm saying? And uh, yeah, I, 
I, I was tired of feeling left out of the conversation. So I wanted to contribute something that showed that the South is this dynamic, creative space that uses hip hop to think about themselves and also think about where uh, Southern Black folks have been and where we intend to go. So, yeah, we'll talk more about that, like towards the end of today too, kind of like where we see things, you know, going with all that. Um, and to kind of still referencing like this journey, you know, I've always like liked that your scholarship comes up in so many different formats, like articles, podcasts, and videos. So how does this book build on or complement your past work? Um, well, I feel like it's a bound version of these conversations I've been having with folks for the last almost a decade now. Wow, almost a decade. <laughs> um, but I feel like, you know what I'm saying, I feel like it's important to for folks to understand, especially those of us that are, you know, majority in the academy is like criticism exists outside of the Ivy walls. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, some of my most critical conversations about music have happened at cafeteria tables or cookouts or, you know, just random people that I happened to, well, before the Pangea, happened to run into and was like, oh, I hear, I hear what you're listening to. What, what do you think about it? Some stuff like that. So I feel like the book is an invitation to those who feel like they might be outside of academic conversation to pull up a seat to the table and have a conversation about it. Um, and I feel like that's especially important with something like Southern hip hop because Southern hip hop is such a communal thing. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's like the collaborative effort and the collaborative spirit certainly shines through. So I wanted to make sure that those same ideas um, were central to how I developed the book. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, especially with, like you said, the subject matter that totally makes sense to make it. It's about a commu- communities. You got to, you know, gear it towards those communities, you know, if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So now we've kind of given our listeners a little bit of, you know, the background. Let's yeah. actually talk about the book. Oh, um, okay. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, in the introduction, you kind of explain that it's about this post-civil rights era generations of Black Southerners saying that you, quote, theorize the social cultural landscape as a hip-hop South, a hodgepodge of past, present, and future narratives of Southern Blackness. The hip-hop South combines cornerstones of the past using hip-hop to carve a space where the complexity of experiences of the post-civil rights era can breathe, end quote. So can you talk more about this big idea here of the hip-hop South? Well, yeah, I feel like I should give my disclaimer. Maybe I should have started the book with this, too, is that I'm only but one member of the hip-hop South. (laughs) So um, what I was trying to get at is, is, one, I really want people to get away from the idea that the South it's kind of this universal experience, right? Like if you're a Southerner, then there are a, a list of things you can check off. Like, oh, of course, all Southerners do this, right? Um, but, you know, living living here and, and thinking about it more thoroughly, it was kind of a reality check that uh, Southerness, especially Southern Black folks are not monolithic. So like the things that I was um, going through and living through and Georgia is different than friends who grew up in Alabama or Mississippi or Tennessee. You know what I'm saying? But our universal thread was what we were listening to. You know what I'm saying? So music kind of became this um, community building space uh, and thinking about, you know, further the understanding that Southern rap isn't just 
rap, like it's actual culture, you know what I'm saying? And having the book there um, helps folks to understand that because in larger conversations, popular conversations about Southerness and black folks, you know, we're often uh, restricted to uh, either being traumatic or or being traumatized or being sad. And in the South is this place that we need to escape, which is a narrative that has sustained itself time and time again over the last century or so. Um, but what I wanted to do was kind of show what about those folks who decided to stay? What about the people who migrated across the South, not necessarily from South to North, but was like, eh, I'm a, okay, I'm in Texas. I'm gonna go try it out and see what it's like in Georgia. I'm gonna see what it's like moving from Mississippi to Birmingham, Alabama. You know what I'm saying? So being able to kind of show that the Southern Black experience is its own unique thing and all of these varying factors are coming into it. But on top of all that, when I say it's a hodgepodge, that's what I meant is that, you know, blackness isn't monolithic. Why would our memories and spaces be monolithic? So it's a little bit of everything. But one of the things that does connect us together is this understanding that we are always grappling with the past, always <laughs> in ways that other folks don't. You know what I'm saying? Like we always have one foot in the past, one foot in the future. Very rarely do we have footing or steady footing in the present. You know what I'm saying? And I feel like Southern rap is one of those foundational things to help us think about what does it mean to be Southern and Black now, in addition to what it meant in the past and what it could be in the future. Yeah, and kind of countering those traditionally white Southern narratives that favor like Confederate things and what, yep, yep, that's a whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, so I think that's definitely um, came through in this, you know, text. And again, I think it has a lot to do with what you were talking about. Like you framed it with some of your individual experiences, but you also extended it, you know, beyond music too, um, to some of these other like types of media as well. So we'll come back to those different mediums later, but um, you were kind of already getting at this, but going on the chapter one, um, you kind of use outcast as, a, you know, obviously foundation and you discuss how they quote, move past Southness, Southern experience is hinged on the American South as a physical location and to Southern-ness, the sociocultural conceptualization of Southern life without the restrictions of, you know, that regional affiliation. Um, and you were already kind of talking about this, but, you know, specifically in those points you were just making, how does outcast musical output articulate some of those things? So... Yeah, um, Outkast is not the first Southern rap group. I'm not going to sit here and, mm-hmm. and lie. <laughs> um, but I do argue that they are the first rap group to be recognized as Southern with a distinctly Southern sound. I will, I will give them that. And what I mean by that is, if you listen to their first album, Southern Playlistic Cadillac Music, you hear all of the references, the sonic, cultural even spiritual references to the city of Atlanta. The idea that the city of Atlanta is an actual city, according to standards above the Mason-Dixon line, but also the possibility that, you know what, in addition to us being an urban space, we can also be a hip-hop urban space. And Southern Playalistic definitely pulls on that with the references to the landmarks across Atlanta, the slang that's used, Um, The sound builds upon this funk tradition that has been part of Atlanta's history. Um, 
And what's interesting is that as they ascend, <laughs> as they ascend, um, their ideas about what it means to be Southern and Black also ascend. You know what I'm saying? And what I mean by that is, you know, by the time you get to an ATLians or even the Stankonia in 2000, um, there is no physical Southern space. It's all theory. It's like a theorization. Stankonia is a theorization about what a new South looks like that's grounded in hip hop. What does it mean to have a Southern based hip hop world? You know what I'm saying? Well, we're going to give you Stankonia to kind of play around with that. And then you also have Speaker Box and The Love Below. So I think that because Outkast was committed to not being restricted to this idea of Southness, oh, they're Southern, so they're going to sound this particular way all the time. Um, and they were like, no, 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 we're Southern, yeah, but we're also going to experiment. And you, and you especially hear that in the production um, I read it as an opportunity to evolve the conversations about what the South can and cannot do in terms of ideas of being contemporary, um, modernity, time, space, all of these things that come together. And each album in their discography really grapples with that. Like if Southern Playalistic is the question of what does it mean for Atlanta to be a hip hop city, then Speaker Box and Love Below is the answer to that question. That's like, OK, this is what Atlanta could be, but also it's its own unique thing. You know what I'm saying? And being and building upon that understanding of the South as its own unique thing is how I framed Outcast for thinking about the other creative outlets and, and expressions that were coming out um, around the same time that were both influenced by Outkast um, or were in tandem with what they were trying to achieve in terms of presenting an idea of a contemporary Southern Black experience. Yeah, and as you were talking, it kind of made me think about something that might be good to kind of like contextualize for our listeners, which is how do you see this, these developing scenes different than the East Coast, West Coast, you know, thing that you're countering here? Well, I feel like the stigma of being Southern is always at the forefront of Southern rap. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know what I mean? Like they they literally named themselves outcasts. Of course they were expecting rejection, right? Um, but that idea of rejection has so many different layers to it in terms of, you know, what's being rejected, who's being rejected. Uh, these things that New York and LA and the Bay don't have to think about regularly. You know what I'm saying? Um, so with that at the forefront, and then on top of that, I think the other thing is because we're in the South and because the South is so much associated with, you know, this idea of civil rights struggle. So the civil rights movement, um, we're forever in the long shadow. Younger, younger generations of black Southerners are forever in the shadow of, the, of Jim Crow and is in the civil rights movement activists who are now elders who expect Younger Black folks to be like, we sacrificed X, Y, and Z. We expect you to be exceptional. And the pushback is, well, even if I am exceptional, it doesn't mean that everything was fixed. Like, there's just like this, this tension that, that kind of manifests in ways that aren't necessarily forefront in New York rap or Cali rap. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's a consistent struggle. How do I get out of the shadow of this magnanimous moment in, in not only Southern history, but American history? 
um, while still also making space to speak my own truth to power. You know what I'm saying? And I think the biggest challenge is speaking a truth that doesn't translate in the same way that the truths that were spoken during the civil rights movement resonate. Like they resonate very deeply, right? Um, and they're like, okay, well, you know, this happened. And, and like, and there are so many monumental moments. Um, and also those folks, we, we still engage and live around these folks who participated on a daily basis. It, it gets challenging. It's like, how do we <laughs> make space, right? And I feel like Southern rap makes space to have those difficult conversations, to have those conversations about, well, what if, what not? And I theorize it in the book as, if Dr. King was talking about the idea of the mountaintop, then the landscape, the social cultural landscape that Southern Black folks exist in is the mountaintop that's not flat. It's not just a straightforward way to victory, so to speak. Like it's still challenges that we have to maneuver with and grapple with um, that the movement couldn't get us ready for because the movement wasn't checking for some of these things, right? Like, you know, for example, in, in in my house, because, you know, my grandparents are both educators. Education is the number one thing. You get educated, it will open up all the doors of possibility, and you'll be thriving and successful. Well, I did everything you told me to do, and I still was unemployed for three years. So, how do I speak to that? I was, I, I was exceptional. I did, I checked off all the boxes that older generations said I should to be successful. And of course I'm successful because I get to stand up in church and be like, I'm Dr. Regina, you know, and my grandmother gets to be proud and everything. But I mean, pride doesn't pay no bills. Like no. it doesn't, it doesn't. So I feel like it's, it's, you know, the music makes space to have these frustrating conversations and even give language to these conversations that we want to have but yeah, literally that language. you know what i'm saying yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's a interesting to hearing you elaborate on that and i guess you know how does your take on all this maybe differ from other discussions about outcasts has there been other scholarship on outcasts that you know goes along the same line or you know how is this different than pre-existing scholarship so you have folks like Amani Perry who wrote Prophets of the Hood in 2004, and she introduces Outcast as an example of the urban South. So I borrowed from Amani. <laughs> um, and uh, you also have folks like Joycelyn Wilson, um, who talks about Outcast from an educational perspective. She theorizes about this idea of the Outcast imagination, which she, um, I think she has a book coming out about that soon. Um, so yeah, so I mean, like, you know, she's thinking about it from this educational anthropological perspective. Um, Zandria Robinson in This Ain't Chicago, she talks about, I mean, she's mostly talking about Memphis, but in terms of like popular conceptions of the Black South, she talks about outcasts as a representation of that. I think what stand, what, how I stand apart from the kind of growing body of work that I'm hoping is continuing to grow, by the way, is that I use, I theorize them um, from a cultural perspective, from a literary perspective. Like a lot of my theorization of outcasts comes from my training as a literary scholar, you know, like doing the close readings of the background music, doing a close reading of the lyrics, right? And putting those in conversation with each other. Um, 
so I feel like that's I feel like my approach is a little bit different. And I also think the intention of my scholarship is different. What my intention of my scholarship isn't to just highlight outcast as a genius group, because I do. But I also think that they are also useful in thinking about these larger questions that we have about race, place and identity as it relates to region. One, because outcast is so accessible, you know what I'm saying? But also because of their recognition, it made sense, at least in my mind, to be like, okay, how do how can we use outcast and ground this argument about what a contemporary South looks like using hip hop and outcast kind of laid out the blueprint for me to do that. Yeah. And I think that worked really well, like in the following chapters, you know, like adapting that, like you said, like from the literary standpoint, like you do in chapter two, where you talk about long division, you know, mm-hmm. and hip hop as part of that storytelling. So can you talk about some of the connections between that book and outcast album Equimini? So I, I, I am unapologetically a huge fan of Kiese Lehman. Um, <laughs> his work is brilliant. It's, it's very raw. Um, and that's one of the things that stood out in terms of how I was thinking about what hip hop can do for updating conversations about Southern blackness. Um, so when I was, when I first read it, the opening of the book is an epigraph or an epithet with um, a line from Andre 3000 in the actual Equimini song off of the Equimini album. That was twice upon a time. There was a boy who died. And the book is focused on two young black boys in Mississippi, both named City. Only one exists in 2013 and the other exists in 1985. So the idea of storytelling, um, using hip hop to tell stories really stood out. And Layman definitely utilizes hip hop um, in useful ways because it allows him to literally speak himself into existence. Right. So because, I mean, you know, when you think about Mississippi, that's a lot to go up against. It's like Mississippi has this kind of permanent, you know, tattoo, if you will, of racial trauma associated with it. If there's nowhere else in the South that could be considered to not be modern, Mississippi is at the top of people's lists. Right. Um, And what Lehman does and a lot of contemporaries from Mississippi, from Cricket Letters, who is Brad Kamikaze Franklin and David Banner, you know what I'm saying? To somebody like Layman who went to um, middle school and high school with uh, Brad's brother who went by Bedazzle. That was his his rap name. Um, he talks about it in the in the book. Um, Hip hop was a way for them to see each other. You know what I'm saying? But what I think what Layman does is so significant with hip hop is because he uses it to ask some of those especially difficult questions like about trauma and history and gender and and violence and what violence does and what does it mean to try to love through the violence you know what i'm saying and as i'm reading especially with his his female characters so when i got to the section about or when i got introduced to shalea crump it automatically made me think about sasha thumper because there's a line in the book where she was like can you help me find myself in the future and i'm like damn Sasha Thumper asked the same question in terms of can you, you know, what do you want to be in the future when you grow up alive? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I was able to, I mean, like, again, that that close listening that the PhD taught me how to do. <laughs> I 
was like, yo, they're in conversation with each other. So then I really started thinking more so about black women and girls and how and how Southern hip hop helps them see themselves and how it helps them to escape, so to so to speak. And and Layman allows that to happen with his women characters. And I just put him in conversation with a larger I guess kind of like a literary genealogy. So folks like Anna Julia Cooper, for example, with a voice from the South, um, Zorno Hurston, obviously, uh, with their eyes are watching pod. Um, you know, the Trinas, the Missy Elliott's, the gangsta boos, like all of these black women and girls, myself included, who are trying to find each other and hip hop is the opportunity for us to do that. And all of that is part of layman's storytelling. And I think it reemphasizes the fact that usually when you think about Southern rap, you don't think about the storytelling. You think about the beat. But what I want folks to understand is that there are multiple layers of storytelling going on. You have the lyrics, of course, which is something I'm trying to get my students to understand. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) the lyrics tell you one story, but the production, the background accompaniment tells you a different story and you put them together and that's what makes the the message or the narrative so dynamic. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Um, And I think that, you know, Layman also puts that to use also is that, Hip hop is his backdrop. It's not just the soundtrack, it's the backdrop. And it reemphasizes what I want folks to understand is that Southern hip hop culture is more than just the rap. It's actual cultural experience. And Layman is a really great example of what that cultural experience can look like. Yeah. And you said something that kind of made me think about all this these discussions in a different context, the classroom. You know, how do you yeah. you know, how do you teach with the, you know, like going back to the idea of education. Mm-hmm. So I teach an outcast class. It's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've taught it multiple times now. I feel like I've taught it maybe six or seven times now, which for the academy, that's that's a lot. Um, and it, you know, usually students come in and they expect it to be, oh, we're just going to listen to Outcast albums all semester. And I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, we're going to listen to Outcast albums. Like, those are always fun days. Is what I call critical <laughs> listening days. But I'm also like, no, you're going to read because this is a 3,000 level class. So, you know. What? <laughs> yeah, basically, you know, feelings, feelings get hurt, right? And I'm like, no, in addition to listening to six albums, you're also going to read three books and you're going to engage in this theorization of what it means to be Southern and Black and Outcast is the case study for that. And they kind of just look at me at first. Um, but by the end of the semester, they can tell you about Outcast. So I'm like, you don't necessarily have to fall in love with them. And usually they like, I added something to my playlist, which lets me know I'm doing my job. Uh, you know, like I'm, I'm doing my job, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but um, having them to tell me like, free, like I didn't even think about this. Like I never thought about the Atlanta child murders, for example, and how that impacts Southern hip hop coming out of Atlanta. I'm like, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So like connecting the dots, you know what I'm saying is, is important. And I feel like, you know, Outkast does such a great job of connecting the dots, but also leaving you just a little bit of leeway to, to come to your own conclusions and your own outcasted theorizations. Um, and that's something that I, that I bring with me into the classroom. Like, I'm not trying to tell my students, you know, going back to the outcast class as an example, I'm not trying to tell my students that you'll fail if you don't love outcast. I mean, like, you know, my petty part might be like, yeah, but I'm also like, what we're also going to do is respect this as work, respect this as art, as culture, even though you might not agree. Um, we're going to treat this as you would any other canonical work. 
if you were taking any other type of English class. You know what I'm saying? And I and and that works. Like it's like, oh, okay, so you're not trying to change my mind. I'm like, no, I'm not trying to change your mind. <laughs> um, but I do want you to think more deeply about what you're listening to and how that listening affects how you see the world around you. Yeah, that's really cool to kind of hear, like from a disciplinary standpoint, what you're doing there. Um, like you said, from that literary part. And also going back to like you were talking about this too as part of your positionality. Um, what do you think like your positionality as a woman looking at these very masculine, you know, spaces and whatnot brings to the table? You were talking a lot about like how you were reading into like these experiences of womanhood and girlhood, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you, you deal with a lot of the same small minded thumb thugs out there. That's like, oh, you can't really understand or truly appreciate outcast because you're a, you know, you're a woman, let alone a black woman. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I'm just like, I'm just to the point now where I'm like, well, that's cool. You know what I'm saying? You can write your own book. <laughs> Cause it's, it's harder than it sounds. You know what I'm saying? Um, but yeah, I mean, like there's, you know, I, as, as much as it's pretty much any other woman or non-binary, non-gender folk who study hip hop or are part of the culture will understand. You're also, you're always going to have to deal with the bullshit, so to speak. Um, but I think what's, what keeps me going and what I encourage students, particularly um, black women who want to study Southern hip hop to do is like, just keep doing what you're doing because you're setting the groundwork. Like, I feel like chronicling Stankonia isn't definitive in my opinion. I feel like it's opening the door so that more definitive works can come through. You know what I'm saying? Um, I like, you know, I'm but one voice. I'm but one perspective about the significance of Outcast. I know there are 50, 11 million different people out there. I want to see what everybody else has to say. You know what I mean? So if anything, I want people to see Chronicling Stankonia as a springboard um, and not just, you know, women as a springboard, but just in general, you know what I'm saying? Non-binary folks, gender fluid folks. Um, like that's the next move is seeing, you know, how the culture permeates these differing spaces that have been queered. You know what I mean? Um, and then it kind of extending that, you know what I'm saying? It's it's a form of being outcasted. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, you're a Southern. Okay. So you're a black woman. Okay. You're a black woman who studies Southern rap. Oh, okay. Right. So I'm like, there's there's consistently this, this concern. Um, And then they, you know, they, they, they open the book and read a little bit and be like, oh, I'm like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, yeah, this is happening in, in the, in the culture. This is happening in the music. And, you know, I feel like Hip hop studies is knocking on 30 years in the academy, right? Because the 30th anniversary of Trisha Rose's Black Noise is coming up in 2024. Um, And Southern rap is just getting started. You know what I'm saying? So um, all that to say, like, you know, I just hope that this that this is an opportunity for folks to see that. Um, it's okay to speak truth and it's okay to speak about hip hop from perspectives that might not be uh, the flavor of the moment, the month, the year. But as long as you know <laughs> that you are, <laughs> as long as you know that you are putting forth an argument that extends the conversation, um, especially about region in, yes. in hip hop culture, I'm here for it. Yeah. Place making place represent. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's so things. many different things. There's, there's a lot to be done. 
And there can't just be, high, it can't be like Highlander. You know what I'm saying? It can't be just one person. Even though the Academy loves to be like, there can only be one, you know, superstar scholar of rap or of this. And I'm like, you know, of anything, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, you know how much stress that is? Like that shit is stressful. You want me to be the one and only Southern rap scholar. That's horrible. I can't do it. Right? Like, I don't want to do it. Like, I don't want to do it. I don't. I don't want to be the the lone scholar. <laughs> yeah, no, that is a lot of pressure. And like you were talking about, you're not speaking for everyone, you know, in that way. And you, mm-hmm. I think you've done a great job trying to balance that out. And it does very much invite those other, you know, perspectives, which is really cool. Yeah, um, I can't do it. Because I mean, like, even in Southern rap, if you look at the trajectory of what that criticism looks like, there would be no chronicling Stankonia without Southern rap journalism. I had to go somewhere. I had to start somewhere. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, in addition to maybe Imani and Zandria, you know what I'm saying? But I mean, for the most part, the critical engagement with the music was happening with the journalists. You know what I mean? So, you know, the Charlie Braxtons and the Maurice Garlands and the Christina Lees, the Gavin Godfreys, the Rodney Carmichaels, those folks, I was that that's who I was reading at first to really, you know, you were asking me about how I got started. That's who I was kind of looking to to see how they were shaping this conversation about Southern rap. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe I can extend that. And hopefully I did that. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I think it's, you know, the table is open. Bring a chair. <laughs> Have a seat. Have a seat. Tell us what you know. You know what I mean? Like I tell my students, I'm like, research is basically think about it like a dinner party. You know what I'm saying? You know, folks are already talking out here with their little glasses and all, you know, and then you walk in and it get, it kind of gets quiet and they're like, oh, so what, so who are you? What do you do? What is your, you know, what is your contribution? You know what I mean? What are you going to do? Just repeat what the, what they've said. They're going to be like, yeah, I know I wrote that. <laughs> what is your contribution? What are you thinking about? You know what I'm saying? Um, and, and and it's interesting because it's like a lot of graduate students in undergraduate. Well, I expect that in undergraduate. Undergraduates expect that you just repeat what you tell them. Like you pair it, like you they pair it back to you, what you first said. It's like, okay, I earned an A. And I'm like, all right, fine, that's undergraduate. But in graduate, graduate students, I'm like, nope, that's that is not gonna fly. I'm gonna need for you to give me something new, original. Why do you think about this from this perspective? What is the what do you want? this theorization this argument to do what's the intention right like what's the intention what's the purpose um and usually I get like kind of like the shocked look you know what I'm saying uh because I mean like for real you know what I mean like it's like you get like they get like the shocked look but then I'm like no for real what do you want what is your intention what do you want your ideas to do again dinner party don't tell me what I've done I know what I did I wrote it (laughs) What are, you know, so something like, well, Dr. Bradley, you talk about this, but have you thought about X, Y, and Z? That's what I want. That's extending the conversation, asking the questions. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not above people asking questions about my work. Yeah. It's good to ask questions, actually. You have to ask questions <laughs> in order to move it forward. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. yeah. I feel like I rambled, but I just, it's. You know, it was cool though. It was great. 
Like, well, yeah, I mean, especially because, you know, apparently graduate students are finding me and I'm like, that's all great. So like when I ask you what your research is, tell me what your research is, not what you think I want to hear. We got to get off of that, grad students. Like, you know, it's one thing to just, you know, regurgitate. That's what your quals are for. <laughs> That's what your qualifying exams are for. You know what I mean? That's where you get to pair it. But after that, you're telling me that you're a PhD candidate. No, no, no. I need to know that you're thinking about more deeply about your original idea, not what you read because of qualifying exams. And I can talk shit because I too had to do qualifying exams. I also did that. <laughs> at Florida State. And, and yes. at Florida State in the Department of English, they might have changed it since then. But when I took my qualifying exams in 2010, 2010 yep 2010 it was me and my brain that's it in a small room with four questions each day a piece nope. of my soul is still in Tallahassee in that little <laughs> closet in Williams building <laughs> I believe it having walked by that building and <laughs> I'm surprised you don't hear like the tormented pieces of souls that are still on the on the fourth floor <laughs> like give us free <laughs> let us go i mean for real you know what i'm saying like i feel like there's there's space for that there's space for you to regurgitate what it is that you you have read and rightfully have done so you know you've done the homework that's wonderful you have a ticket to get into the dinner party yes now that you're in the dinner party want to know what you want to eat yeah what you want to eat which which way you gonna go you gonna go to the all you can eat buffet you gonna pick from Cook on your own. You're cook on your own. Like, you know, what what you gonna do? Like, you know, your qualifying exams and candidacy get you an invitation to the dinner party. Yeah. Your original questions at work are what gets you through the dinner party. To yeah. dessert, which is your defense. <laughs> I'm working towards dessert. <laughs> yeah. So see, it's like working towards the dessert, like the dessert menu. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, I call it the dessert menu because, you know, nobody can tell you more about your work than you when you're ready to defend. I mean, they might try, but it's like, shh, I got this. Excuse me. As I was saying, this, this, this. No, for real. It's like this, this, this. You're supposed to be, you know, debating amongst your peers. How are you going to be a peer if you just kind of back down because somebody didn't like what you said? Like, okay, well, that's well, well and good. However, <laughs> this, 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 and this. Yeah, that's really helpful and interesting to hear about the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because, cool. I mean, you know, if you're, I don't know, I just feel like if you're still concerned about what people are going to say, because somebody's always going to have something to say. That's the academy. The academy is going to be critical all the time. But mm -hmm. if that's the only thing that moves you to finish, you know what I'm saying? Oh, let's say that you, you know, let's say that you get through the dinner party and the dessert and you, you know, have this idea. But then, you know, then you get to go to the for real, for real dinner party, the after party, <laughs> which is the conference season. <laughs> conference attendees don't care they don't no. care that you were a superstar graduate student and that you did this this and this if you're not bringing something new or innovative to the table q a is going to put you in your feelings because yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know just be ready you have to be ready to speak your truth you know what i'm saying and and know what that truth is and that's what the dissertation is it's trying to figure out what your voice is so you can speak on it you know what i'm saying yeah. How do you feel like to thinking about like the long-term journey? How did your dissertation you actually feel like prepare you for this project? 
Who did it? <laughs> um, well, I took one chapter from my dissertation and that's in the book. I still can't look at my dissertation. It's too painful. <laughs> um, so I feel like, you know, my dissertation gave me the stamina, I think, to write about hip hop culture. Um, it prepared me to think about region in hip hop culture. Um, that's not what my dissertation was about. My dissertation was more of a generalized overview about, you know, how hip hop impacts ideas about race and popular culture um, and literature because English PhD, you know. Um, but yeah, I feel like it gave me the stamina, like, you know, my chair, you know, shout out to Dr. David Eichert. Um, he he was he had me in a rigorous enough not necessarily a program, but a regime. You know what I mean? He was like, you are right. Just think of this as writing a first draft or an early draft of your book, of a book. I kind of took that, took that away from it. And then when I looked at it, I, you know, I was like, oh, okay. But I mean, the, the one chapter was what stood out for me was the the slavery chapter, which is chapter three. Three? Yeah. Um, But even like looking back on it and going back through it now, I can tell that that's the most academic chapter in the book like folks kind of look at me kind of like I don't know you know what I'm saying like I feel like it's the one that's most most grounded in a traditional academic inquiry I you know see that now that you mentioned it that yeah does. it's like you know because if you look at the outcast one I mean there's still a little bit of whimsicality so to speak I mean like the introduction but then you get to like chapter three and it's like I mean like it's still my baby but it's the still like yeah I can tell this one was definitely is <laughs> the most academic one I feel like chapter three is the one for English you know for my colleagues in English who are like well can she do it and I'm like just check chapter three yes I can do it I can do traditional literary analysis so to speak take um, that <laughs> yeah like i can do traditional literary i mean or even chapter two with ksa layman that's feel like that's another example of that but um language wise like just the feel of that chapter i feel is more traditional than the rest of the book you know what yeah I, mean? I did think it was interesting though how you got into like different media in that one um like the tv show like underground and Django unchained um can you talk a little bit actually about that chapter in terms of how hip-hop is operating in those yeah i think i mean you know the initial introduction in in Django and on, on i mean like the very first thing in underground which was an amazing show like i'm so mad that they canceled underground um the opening scene like the very very first scene of the whole series is you see uh, Aldous Hodge running through a forest and it's, he's a runaway slave. Like he's, a, he's just trying to escape. And as he's running, you know, you don't hear him crashing through the bush and crashing through the trees and what you hear Kanye West's black skinhead. And when I first watched it, like the very first time I watched it, I had to pause it. Cause I was like, wait, wait, what? Like, I'm, what the hell? You know what I mean? But then I was like, I actually paid attention to where the song was heard. Like you heard Kanye West breathing where uh, Hodge's character Noah should have been breathing. And I'm like, oh my God, like it's actually pulling in folks who might not be emotionally or even culturally invested in in the effects of slavery <laughs> using hip hop, you know what I'm saying? Um, and then with Django, 
you know, I thought it was interesting with, I mean, Tarantino has a really interesting relationship with hip hop period, but I felt like hip hop for a historical piece was a sonic reminder that the, that he was not being true to historical accounts, I guess, you know what I'm saying? Um, because, you know, like one of the other scenes that stood out that I, I didn't really keep in, in the chapter that I thought about was the one where they see the two Klansmen and I'm like the Klansmen, but the year is 1848. And if you're at all familiar with American history, you know that the Klan doesn't come around until towards the end of the 1800s. So it's like these, I mean, like, but unless you like, you know, we're a historian, you know what I'm saying? You're kind of just like, oh, oh, okay. It's the Klan. Of course the Klan represents racial violence. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But then like the flip side of that is you have this one scene and this, and this one scene was the reason that I wrote about this at length is when they come back to Candyland, you know what I'm saying? And you hear Rick Ross, 100 Black Coffins. But right before that, um, you see a, a slave fighter who is ripped apart by dogs, but you don't see him physically getting ripped apart, which would be in line with Tarantino's MO about, you know, ridiculously exaggerated violence on screen. That's on brand. That's on point, right? Mm-hmm. But you don't see it. You you hear it. You hear the dog snapping. You hear the man howling out. You hear the slave patrol, you know, kind of laughing at it. Um, you know, some folks could read it as getting sexually aroused. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, it was the sound of it. And right after that, you have Rick Ross's 100 Black Coffins come on and you're just like, wait, what the hell? Wait. So like all of these sonic cues of the residual effects of, of, of slavery um, really caught my attention. And I was like, yeah, we need to write about this. And then on top of that, it was in the South. So clearly I was like, <laughs> well, duh, right? Um, but then also like the known world, you know what I'm saying? Like the known world, a lot of folks haven't read it. I mean, it's a beautiful, it's, it's gorgeous. It's a gorgeously written novel about black slave owners. Um, and when, you know, um, Mr. Jones was, was talking about it and interviewing about it, um, one of his descriptions of hip hop, he was talking about the 2003 Snoop Dogg incident at the MTV Awards when he came on the red carpet and had two black women in dog collars and chains and, you know what I'm saying? That was his reference point, but he, but the way that he described hip hop was visual envisioning Master P, who's out of New Orleans, but he didn't call him Master P, he called him Silver P, right? And I was just like, isn't that interesting? Like, I was just kind of like, you know, sort of kind of fell in with this idea about what it would be, mean to be enslaved. And I think in, in, in my mind, I'm like, this is further amplified because it's in the South. So it hits home even harder because you're using Southern rap to make this example about why hip hop is commodified and capitalistic and, and and misogynistic and all, all the, all the isms, you know what I mean? But region was such a significant, but subtle part of that critique. I was like, yeah, I got to write about it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like blurring so many lines. Like you were talking about like historically with diegetic and non-diegetic music, Mm -hmm, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. It's really interesting. Yeah, because I mean, like, you know, besides maybe Negro spirituals, what does slavery sound like? You know what I'm saying? Like, what does it sound like? Do we think about, you know, the the silence 
Do we think about the quiet in the fields as people were working? Do we think about what the sound of a whip crashing through the air sounds like? That is a very distinct sound. You, you can YouTube it. It's a very distinct sound. You know what I mean? Like, is that what you're hearing? I'm mean, like, there's no soundtrack, so to speak, for that day-to-day life, right? Um, and I probably write about this somewhere else at length, but going back to Django Unchained, I mean, like, you know, um, Carrie Washington's fig, uh, character, Hildy, um, the way that she used quiet and silence really still kind of messes with me even to this day, right? Like she she says very few words, so to speak, but sonically her silence is saying a lot. Like we hear... Uh, her silent scream, so to speak. Um, we hear her being abused and assaulted, um, but you know we don't. We don't just kind of like in fleeting, which makes me think about um, Aunt Hester from Frederick Douglass's biography, and Fred Moten talks about this in the opening of In the Break, right? So it's like there, you know, there there is there is much to be desired in terms of thinking about. It seems like a simplistic question. What does slavery sound like? But I'm not even just thinking about just the musicality of it. Like you were saying, like not I'm thinking about the non-musicality of it and how much of that has been lost to history. Because you know what I'm saying? Like I'm just curious. You know what I mean? So yeah, I mean, like I think that hip hop was was a stepping stone for folks to understand the brutality of of chattel slavery, but it also still gave them enough buffer to be like, yep, that happened in the past. Is this still, you know what I'm saying? There was, I'm like, it, it gave a soundtrack, but it also provided a buffer because I feel like if folks didn't have that sonic buffer of contemporary music and films like Django or in underground, you know what I'm saying? it would be too much. It'd be too brutal. So like you, it will fall into the same veins as something like 12 years a slave, right. Or roots. Right. But with the, you know, but with that kind of like sonic buffer, this is almost like it's a, it's a brief reminder. Like, yeah, we're, we're just speculating. It's not historically accurate where something like 12 years a slave is historically. Yeah. Reminds you of that. <laughs> presentist reading of it sort of mm-hmm. to kind of deal with that yeah yep that's really interesting yeah and so i'll be interested to see what you can play with with silence because that is something that i don't think is thought about enough with like soundtracks and whatnot you know um and then also going back to chapter four um you get into in this case study or case studies rather the music of ti and then of course going back to the literary side jasmine ward's books where the line bleeds and um and we reaped and i thought this chapter was really interesting in terms of how you draw these connections between trap and grief um so can you talk about what we learn about those things in this chapter and what was it like for you to bring your personal experiences especially here but also throughout the larger book yeah, so this chapter was the was hands down the hardest one to write for me. Um, my father has been deceased for 17 years in December. Um, I was writing this chapter in 2018, 2019. Um, 
and it still felt like he had just passed the day before, right? So, I mean, like, because I wanted to make sure it was it was accurate. Like, so I went back and had to revisit the day, what was going on and what I was doing and just kind of just thinking through, you know, and, and getting, pretty much trying to get most of the unbridled emotion out of it. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I left a little bit in there, just a little bit. <laughs> but then, you know, using my dad's death and my use of T.I.'s Urban Legend album to really kind of think more deeply about trap as a complicated space because when we think about trap now we think about this musically you know what i'm saying is it's a international export you know what i'm saying um but i wanted to get back to some of its cultural relevance um and ti his use of trap was a really good way to do that you know what i'm saying um and and when i really started thinking about it and going back and listening to his catalog i was like he grieves a lot. He grieves himself. He grieves friends that he's lost to the streets. He's He grieves, uh, especially after the death of his best friend, Philant Johnson. Um, there's always some kind of reference to Big Phil on every CD moving forward. And then the part that really kind of stood out was on Heavy is the Head. I think that's like his three albums ago now. Um where you actually hear a reenactment of the night that Philant Johnson got shot. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's a lot, right? I mean, like, um, but being able to to write about that. So grief has always been f- grounded in the way that Tip talks about the trap, how he sees himself in the trap. And that distinguishes him from folks like Gucci and Jeezy and even, you know, some of the younger generations of folks, you know what I'm saying? The Futures and and the Waka Flockas, you know what I'm saying? But I mean, like there's always this grieving element to T.I.'s music, which in turn made the trap more humanistic in ways that other artists kind of presented the trap as a stoic space, even like it is what it is. But that never was just the case for Tip. And that always has stood out to me. So I wanted to explore that element of it. And in terms of Jasmine Ward, Honestly, Emily Ruth, like I put Jasmine Ward in this chapter because I needed to give people a new framework for engaging Jasmine's work because I was sick of it. Every time I read about folks engaging Jasmine Ward's work, it was always through William Faulkner. And granted, Faulkner is a great writer, but Faulkner can't tell me anything about being Black in the South. So you mean to tell me that the only framework you got is a white dude who lived in Jim Crow, South Mississippi, and that's your reference point for talking about Jasmine Ward's work, who centers poor working class Black Mississippians in the 21st century. No, you can't do that shit. Like, I was so angry. <laughs> and I feel like some of that anger comes through in that chapter. I'm like, y'all can't do this. This is not this is not accurate. Here, let me help you out. So literally putting her as a trap writer. If you read Jasmine Ward's writing, it is gorgeous. It will leave you with brittle bones. I am not taking that away from her. However, she is in the trap. (laughs) Her first book, Where the Line Bleeds, is a trap novel. It centers on brothers. One is a dope boy. The other is trying to make it on the docks. Faulkner can't tell me about that. Southern hip hop can. Southern hip hop can, Faulkner cannot. 
we need to switch that up. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, I'm just, I was just sick of it. Um, <laughs> so, I was, you know, when I was thinking about T.I. as a grief, as trap is a grieving, I'm like, oh, psh, duh. So men we reap does the same thing. She talks about these men who she lost back to back to back to back. You know what I'm saying? And she, like, even in just her description, I mean, like Southern rap is part of that. Her brother before he passed, you know what I'm saying? Like she's making, you know, she's re-envisioning his last moments. And how does she re-envision his last moments? Oh, he's listening to rap. He's going down the highway. He's seeing all it. I mean, like rap is such a central part to understanding Ward's grief. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, this is what we, these are the type of conversations that we need to have. You know what I mean? And we weren't having those conversations. So I borrowed from Toni Morrison. I read the book I wanted to read. Yeah. I mean, I wrote the book I wanted to read. I mean, I do read the book <laughs> I want to, but I wrote the book I wanted to read. <laughs> I mean, like, you know what I mean? And these are the type of conversations that I want. We're not having those yet. Maybe that'll change after this book. I, I hope, I'm hoping that folks will see that you can't just collapse the beauty and complexity of some of these Southern Black writers that you absolutely love and adore and just negate what makes them so wonderful, which is Southern rap, Southern hip hop. Yeah, and I think that's it fits really well as being the last like full chapter of the book because it's sort of like really packs like quite a bit of punch here and kind of like you said does very much show with these analyses you know invite more people to the table you know to have that um it's a really good kind of model for thinking about those things i think um so i thought that was interesting and speaking of like continuing work you know i thought the last sentence of the book was great um, we were kind of looking at this, talking about this a little bit earlier, but, you know, you conclude with, quote, the South is not a monolith. The criticism that engages it should also not be non-monolithic. It is my hope that the study of outcast and their influence is only in the beginning. So, you know, thinking about all of this, where do you see these different studies of the American South in its various forms? Um I want to see what a queer Southern hip hop South looks like. I can't write about that. Um, I'm not part of the queer community, but I'm hoping that this book has made room. I mean, I want to see more in-depth conversation and more in-depth analysis of some of these Southern rap pioneers. Like I would love to see somebody write at length about Scarface, like for real. His storytelling and his grappling with mental health is amazing. You know what I'm saying? Um, want to hear more about trap. I mean, like folks are interested in trap. I want to hear more critical engagement with what they think trap music is and what it represents. Um, I want to hear more about women in Southern rap. Yes. I, mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I touch on it, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? But I plan in, in future projects to really kind of just grapple with it. Like, what does it mean? What does Southern hip hop mean for black women, black girls? Um, like myself, you know what I'm saying? It was an escape. You know, I was raised in a, in a pretty strict Christian household. You know what I mean? Um, and, and you know, don't get it wrong. I mean, like my folks were great. You know what I'm saying? They pretty much let me do what I want. But I mean, church was definitely the foundation of everything. Like if I went out, I was in church the next. Like if I went out to the homecoming dance, I was still at church. And it wasn't even just like regular church service. It was like Sunday school service, nine o'clock. And I just got in from homecoming or whatever little party at two o'clock. They didn't care. I was up in at church, stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's, there are more nuanced conversations that need to be had about women and 
you know, differing ideas and expressions in, in, in Southern rap. And I'm hoping that this book opens up that door for a lot of those conversations to be had. And let me just reemphasize, I'm not the one to have them. Like, I, <laughs> I really, I am really trying to battle against the Highlander theory for Southern, Southern rap studies. Like, I don't want there to be just one. You know what I mean? Because, like, you know, it, it negates what what Three Stacks was saying. I mean, like, he said the South got something to say. He didn't say it was just Georgia got something to say, Atlanta got something to say, Outcast got something to say. He said the South. I am but one part. <laughs> so I'm hoping that in saying that the South still got something to say, which is how I also kind of put the conclusion in that book, is like, you know, the still part is us documenting these experiences from the perspective of folks who grew up in the culture and who appreciate the the complexities of the cultures for what they are. Yeah. And you've got another book coming out later, right? In the year that kind of invites or has more of those voices. I put my money where my mouth is. Yeah. The outcast reader is coming out uh, in August. So it's, um, not just me theorizing about outcast. You have some of the more well-known African-American studies folks, you know, the Ronaldo Andersons, the Susanna Morris's, um, Ruth Nicole Brown. Um, and they're theorizing about outcast and why outcast is important. You know what I'm saying? And I'm just super excited about that because I want I'm folks to be like, it's not just me who has a, who, who loves to theorize about outcast. Like I brought together some people. <laughs> yeah. That's so really that comes cool. out in August. So I'm really excited. Yeah, I'll look forward to checking that out as well. Yeah, <laughs> too. yeah I'm excited. Um, what other projects do you have in the work? these days so i well promoting the book that's the biggest project at the moment um <laughs> i feel like i severely underestimated the rigor of what it means to promote a new book <laughs> fair enough um, so i mean like that's the biggest project at the moment but i mean i'm also you know starting to think about my new my next uh i guess research project book which is kind of going back and answering some of those questions i was asking about earlier like gender for example and, and black women and how, where Black women fit into this conversation. So I'm I'm playing around with that at the moment. Um, I'm still a creative writer too. So I'm trying to finish this novel, which is doing what it wants, but it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like, I feel like you know, it's, it's an opportunity to continue to have these conversations, which is why I really appreciate your question about multiple platforms. I feel like these conversations need to happen across multiple platforms to keep them fruitful and keep them fresh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and like we were talking about earlier, like sound reveals certain things. You know, mm-hmm. there's some things that depend, like the type of writing or talking about it, like reveals that the written word does. Yeah, you know, it's just interesting to see, like you said, those mm-hmm. different modes. <laughs> yeah. But cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bradley, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Yeah. And um, listeners, just as a reminder, this was an interview with Dr. Regina N. Bradley, author of Chronicling Stanconia, The Rise of the Hip Hop South, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2021. This is Emily Allen, and I will catch you next time here on the New Books Network. 